0: Duty, little buckaroo. Do you like animals? We sure do. So come on down to the
1: weekly meeting of the animal fan club. Cuckoo, cuckoo.
0: The Cuckoo Clock is proclaiming that it's creature o'clock, so ring that buzzer, it sounds like a lion roar.
1: Roar!
0: And open the door to join us for the 52nd meeting of the Animal Fun Club.
1: I'm a cow who is just really excited for rutting season, Meredith.
0: And I'm ectothermic tetrapod Mike.
1: And we meet every week at our Clubhouse, we like to call the Dalmatian Station.
0: Roar, roar, roar.
1: They talk about our favorite animals.
0: While we lack on expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Oh, wow. So I'll saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin and fed podcast in all kingdom, Animalia.
1: (laughs) I love fach podcasts. Feathered equals (laughs) 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 fach. sure does. We're in a silly mood here at the Dalmatian Station today because we found out that the king is dead.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's right, Meredith. Today we are recording this episode is the day that we have seen called on numerous news outlets the race for the presidency of the United States. Uh, Yeah. And (laughs) what can we say? Brand Clubby's favorite candidate of this final little segment uh, has prevailed. Yeah.
1: We're very excited here. So good things to come.
0: For real. I'm looking forward to <laughs> speeches that are coherent. You know, I'm, I'm looking forward to a president who speaks in complete sentences uh-huh. and who has complex thoughts and recognizes complexities of situations and communicates using words.
1: Yeah. That aren't just superlatives. Yeah. I'm like super duper extra crazy excited to um, move away from a superlative driven political rhetoric
0: (laughs) myself also
1: yeah well i mean in other news what how 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 are the animals this week
0: well i think that we do have some animal wisdom coming from this sort of chrysalis metamorphosis phase so i'm trying to consider those types of things sure simultaneously the fucking bug war continues with what we're now calling the bug coffee incident Uh where i like Fiercely had exactly enough time to make myself breakfast and pour myself coffee before being on a video call with some friends. And as I was walking to my desk, looked at my freshly poured cup of coffee and lo, floating in the middle of it, was one of my insect enemies.
1: No. Oh my
0: gosh. I had to make a fresh pot of coffee (laughs) and I was a few minutes late.
1: You know, that actually happened. We at work one time working in the coffee business (laughs) there, we had quite the infestation. It was very unclear as to where they came from. And that was the incident known as the great roach massacre of the 45th floor. Yes. I've heard of it. Anyway, it was so bad that one literally got into like one of the big coffee urns and somebody like, cause it was like self-serve. They poured themselves a cup of coffee out of the urn and And then he drank his whole cup of coffee and at the bottom was a roach. So he drank the entire cup with roach flavor. Free
0: coffee for life.
1: Oh, yeah. We reached out real fast and um, hooked him up. Can you imagine? And he was such a good sport. Like that could have gone so horribly, so horribly. (laughs) <laughs>
0: yeah, it seems like maybe he worked in the service industry at some point and he understood that this wasn't some sort of malicious attack against him and it was no happenstance. And
1: or he was just, you know, maybe even he hadn't, he was just raised well. <laughs> he was raised uh, rat.
0: <laughs> there it is. Yeah. Another concept that will be new to the White House. <laughs>
1: right, exactly.
0: Or, you know, we're excited maybe newly returning to the White House is maybe a better way of saying Did it.
1: I send you this article? Am I dreaming this that I read something about somebody making the comment that there's been no talk about animals in this white house. There's no pets. There's no joy. There's no. Yeah. We've anything. About that. But I saw it. This was after our presidential pets. Um, I wish, I wish you, had, you also had also met. met.
0: <laughs> presidential <laughs> pets. I wish you had also met. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I was thinking, I was like, there's just no such thing as like pets in this administration. They're just, there's that level of whimsy just doesn't exist. And then somebody else had made that same comment about, this is not a White House where pets would ever feel welcome and loved and cherished.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that I, I really like the way that you say it that it's like the sense of whimsy, you know, like that that's yeah, that's one of the many reasons for a human and an animal to engage in sort of you know uh, interspecies companionship moment.
1: Right, right. And to, you know, give of yourself to this to this sweet innocent creature. And to care for something other than yourself, but again, that's not the point of this administration. Clearly, not at all. <laughs> well, anyway, I'm happy to report in um, crossword animal news that today hexapod came up. It was like many an insect or something was the clue, and I was looking at it. I was like oh. hexapod. <laughs> that's fun. Yeah, I love being able to get these complicated crossword things without having to like get the crosses. Like, you just get to fill it in because you just right. happen to know it. Like, that's right. such a win in crossword land.
0: Yeah, I like that for you. I'm glad that the animal energy is helping you with your crosswords.
1: So, related to the woodcock on some taxonomic level was the auk, which was like a puffin, puffin and their allies. And so, ox came up in the crossword again, and I was like, I would not have known this word. Who knows these words unless they're doing, like, animal podcasts? Mm. Or listening listening faithfully to animal podcasts.
0: Yeah. Well, you know. It's useful. It's useful stuff. It's very useful.
1: All right. Well, do you wanna do the thing? The animal things. Um, yeah,
0: I think this is the time to do the animal things. I think we're ready to kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer.
1: Yeah. Ready? Okay. Texana you. Texana we. Taxana who?
0: Taxana me. Kingdom. And Amelia. Animals rule. Adoi, doi. Phylo. Nematoda. The round worms are back, so buckle up. Class. Chromodoria. They were formerly treated as a subclass. Order. Rabditita. They're phyloparasitic and microbivorous. Family. On Chor-Cisera day, they're not the fiercest for humans. Genus. Dinofilaria. Some species are parasitic. Species. Emittus. That's the heart worm. It'll worm its way into your heart, quite literally.
1: Ew. Look out, dogs.
0: Yeah. Exactly. That's very, yeah, right on, Meredith. You know. I don't even have to tell you. <laughs> we're back with the nematodes. Previously, we've talked about Trichinalia spilaris. Right, which, right. Ew. I believe is the name. Uh, that is the nematode that causes trichinosis. Right. Now we're in dinofilaria immitis, the nematode that causes heartworms. Nematodes are fucking crazy. I... <laughs> They're very, very, very small. They're a very diverse animal phylum. They are everywhere. Various estimates put the number of species anywhere from 25,000 to 100 million. Oh, (laughs) just a little tiny, little tiny range. range. (laughs) They're found in every part of the Earth's lithosphere. And the lithosphere is like dirt. Essentially, that's like what we all live on, you know, on top of the rocks. And it's even at great depths like Three thousand to twelve thousand feet below the surface—that's one to three and a half kilometers—in the gold mines in South Africa, they have been found.
1: Ugh! Gosh, can't escape them. They're so
0: sure can't.
1: (laughs) They represent
0: ninety percent of all animals on the ocean floor. What? In total, four point four times ten to the twenty. So that's four, four, and then twenty zeros. Nematodes inhabit the Earth's topsoil, which is approximately 60 billion nematodes per human. Oh gosh. And the highest densities are observed in tundra and boreal forests, so they like cold weather.
1: Oh, great. Good for them. <laughs> wow, I'm already like angry at them. I gotta stop. <laughs>
0: yeah no it's okay to have a little bit of nematode rage i
1: need to chill it out yeah let me hear about them first before i pass judgment well
0: these are bad ones specifically so you're not going to hear good things
1: there was like a total like know-it-all kid um in high school i think in high school maybe it was just junior high but his name was nema and we always called him nematode sick burn (laughs) i know right yeah, we were real clever. Oh, I forgot to call my niece today. It's her
0: birthday. I'll have to call her tomorrow and hear all about Good her birthday, birthday party. Alice. Okay, so tax facts. Kingdom Animalia Phylum Nematoda class Chromodoria. This is a class of nematodes. They have annuals and their amphids elaborate and spiral. They all have three esophageal glands. So amphids are innerviated invaginations of cuticle in nematodes. They're usually found in the anterior head region of the animal at the base of the lips. They're the principal olfactosensory organs of nematodes. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Sometimes Meredith and I, pretty much before every recording, we're like, I need 10 more minutes because we're like, you know, finalizing whatever and it's all... You know, I don't. Again, we're throwing open the production barn doors, but let me just tell you that the nematode is the wrong creature to research when you're having one of those days and you're like, I'm maybe ten minutes behind because, like, amphids. I thought I, I, aphids I know about amphids I don't, and like innerviated invaginations. Like,
1: yeah, what, what is the that? Fuck?
0: What's an invagination?
1: It's like a female imagination. It's like a feminist approach to imagination, invagination.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I typed it into the internet, and the definition I got is the action or process of being turned inside out or folded back on itself to form a cavity or pouch.
1: Like a vagina.
0: Allegedly. <laughs> Hot pocket. Order. rab <laughs> dt Da. These are free-living zooparasitic and phytoparasitic microbivorous nematodes living in the soil.
1: Easy for you to say.
0: (laughs) Zooparasitic means that they're parasitic to animals. Mm -hmm. Phytoparasitic, I found a definition that said it's a parasitic plant, but the nematodes are not plants, they're animals. So if it's zooparasitic and phytoparasitic, perhaps it is parasitic to animals and plants. Okay. But a phytoparasite is a parasitic plant according to the Merriam Webster dictionary.
1: Okay. Oh, it's cytotoxin. That's cells. Cyto is cells, not phyto. Damn it. Yeah, a-
0: phyto, I was like phytoplankton is maybe yeah. is maybe plant-based plankton. Yeah. Planktonic sized plant material. And then microbivorous. Micro microbivorous? Microbivorous. <laughs> a micro <laughs> A microbivore. <laughs> it has one too many syllables. Yeah. A microvore. That's great. Microvib. <laughs> Microvorous. Microbivorous is that's a mouthful. Yeah. But it's a feeding behavior consistent of eating microbes, and it's you know practiced by animals of the mesofauna, microfauna, and meiofauna. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <sighs> Family. Okay. Oncosercede. This fam contains some of the most devastating human parasitic diseases. We have lymphatic filariasis, onchocerciasis, loasis, and other phylariasis. Okay. Genus, Dinofilaria, there's 27 species, and then the species, Imidus, the heartworm. <sighs> it's a small thread-like worm. It causes dirofilariasis which is spread through the bites of mosquitoes and the mosquitoes that spread it are in the genera Aedes Culx, anophilus and Mansonia heartworms love dogs mainly, but they can also infect a bunch of our other carnivora friends like cats, wolves, coyotes, jackals, foxes, ferrets, beer, bears, seals, sea lions, and even us primates humans in rare circumstances.
1: Oh my gosh. So,
0: when your dog is, you know, you're dealing with dog heartworm issues or that dog has worms or heartworms specifically, That this is what we're talking about. Ugh. They live Ugh. in the pulmonary arterial system, so the arteries that go, between, like, the connections between the lungs and the heart mm-hmm. as well as in the heart, which makes sense, I guess, for a level of oxygenation. Like, that's where you okay. would think there would be the most oxygenation, so I wonder if that's why a major health effect in the infected animal host is a manifestation of damage to its lung vessels and tissues. And the infection may result in serious complications for the infected host if left untreated, eventually leading to death most often as a result of secondary congestive heart failure.
1: And this comes from like the dog getting bit by this particular mosquito. Is that it? Okay.
0: Yes. That is how the nematodes are transferred from one infected animal to another animal to infect that. Animal.
1: Gotcha. Okay. Oh, it's so awful.
0: Yeah. So there's a couple different ways to detect this. We have microfilarial detection, where which is microscopic identification of microfilaria on a direct blood smear above the buffy coat in a microhematocrit tube using the modified Knott test, Knott test, or after millipore filtration.
1: Okay. <laughs> There's also
0: antigen testing, which has mostly supplanted the microfilarial detection method. Then an x-ray would be taken of the animal to evaluate the severity of the heartworm infection and get a sort of assessment of prognosis and to develop a treatment plan. The treatment plan is usually medication and, and that kills the heartworms. Got it. So after that point, the dog needs a lot of rest so that the dog's body can absorb the dead heartworms without ill effect. If the dog is exerting itself, dead worms may break loose and then travel to the lungs, potentially causing respiratory failure and sudden death. (gasps) And according to the American Heartworm Society, the administering (laughs) of aspirin to dogs infected with heartworms is no longer recommended due to a lack of evidence of clinical benefit.
1: Oh, I just I'm trying to imagine the challenge of like, you know, keeping a good dog down, you know, like trying to keep them from being there themselves, which is like high energy and just wanting to romp around and play. Right.
0: Well, this happened to friend of the show, Freaka, the dog most closely associated with Max Weir. Mm-hmm. Freaka just kind of couldn't run around for a little while. And that was a bummer. You know, oh. it was just a little... Summer in the woods and she really couldn't do much exercising. But it's my understanding she's, you know, back to it and she's having fun again.
1: Thank goodness.
0: But it is hard. It's kind of like, I think for some animals too, they have to kind of give them downers so that the animal's tired because otherwise it's just going to have so much energy and it's going to be very frustrated to not be able to expend the energy. Exactly. There's preventative drugs, which are highly effective Mm -hmm. when regularly administered. There's topical preventions. There's You know, I mean, I I guess that's kind of really the extent of my heartworm information. I haven't really gone more in depth with it, but I just thought it would be nice to get another nematode. And I just thought, why not do like kind of a famous one, you know?
1: (laughs) That is indeed a famous nematode. Yeah. Yeah. That's super interesting. I often won't think about things like nematodes as animals, you know, like they just seem like this nefarious threat just kind of lurking hither and yon
0: yeah yeah i agree with that
1: but it's good yeah
0: it it does take a little bit of reminding that like worms are animals i guess and nematodes are animals like it's a strange form of life to consider i guess
1: right and also they're like so microscopic too
0: yeah they're very tiny
1: but yeah i think after your presentation i can go back to still feeling mad at them the nematodes
0: i'm not trying to tell you to not feel mad well at them. i
1: felt like i needed to give them a chance but i think i did and now armed with this new arsenal of knowledge about them i still don't like them and i'm still mad at them stay away from my dog friends please and my cat friends and all my carnivora friends fair enough yeah well shall we take a break and go battle some nematodes in the street
0: yeah let's kick some nematode
1: but posterior <laughs> break time Stubborn donkey, tangled sled dogs, tired muskox, lazy llama,
0: life is tough for working animals,
1: and sometimes they just need a helping hoof.
0: We here at Camel Towing are here to help.
1: Our fleet of certified roadside camel towers are here to get you over the hump.
0: Any hour of the day,
1: any day of the week,
0: from breakdowns
1: to collisions
0: to roadside repair
1: or even a gentle nuzzle from camels who care.
0: Let us be the beasts of burden to your beasts of burden.
1: We're the best choice because we are animals who understand the plight of other animals.
0: Call us today for a free estimate.
1: And see how our prices at camel towing are are nothing nothing to to spit at.
0: Free verse.
1: Couplet. Stanza. Haiku. Here are some animal poems for you. Cool.
0: This poem is about the uterus and ovipositors and maybe even so called accessory glands. But it's definitely also about the patriarchy. And though my sucking mouth parts may lay partially in my cheek, my message is sincere. Burn it down. This poem is about the patriarchy. But lo, the patriarchy is about suppressing those who possess a uterus, or ovipositor, or maybe even so-called accessory glands. And thus, I am the speaker of at least one truth. This poem was about The Uterus.
1: This poem has no title. Murder. Murder. Murder? Maybe if I say it enough times, one after the other, it will lose its power. It's syllable pieces less than the sum of their parts. Myrrh. Dur. Myrrh. Dur Just like my pieces, my segments rather. Well, aside from my quarter inch stinger. Divested from each other, they don't seem so terrible anymore. Not any more than the teethy fly, or rather adorable moniker for the scourge of Africa. Or the delightfully amorous kissing bug. Oh, no big deal, they say. She'll just bite your lip and gift you with some delicious disease. And they have the nerve to call me the murder hornet? Murder? Murder? Murder, murder, ad nauseum. It's the only press I get. But I would never. I am the Asian giant hornet. And I am beautiful, damn it. Come a little closer so that you can hear me. That's it. Closer, closer, closer. Closer. Bam sting. Tricked ya. I suggest going to the hospital now.
0: Do snakes write sonnets?
1: Quails quatrains?
0: We hope you found solace
1: in our refrains.
0: Taxana you. Taxana we. Texana, who?
1: Texana, me. Kingdom. Animalia. This is Animal Fan Club, after all. Phylum. Chordata. Our spines give us power. Class. Mammalia. Fuzzy, fuzzy, even on their antlers. Order. Artiodactyla. Even toed, ungulate squad. Family. Servidae, it's sure, not a false deer. Genus. Service. Deer of Eurasia. Species. Service densis. antlers, ruts, bugle calls velvet. It's me, the humble elk.
0: The hung the humble elk. No, the humble elk. Humble elk.
1: It, that's but not the species. Elk. It's just elk. No,
0: no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, but elks are humble.
1: Yeah, they are humble.
0: And this is a true deer because it's the servant It's a cervidae. It's a true deer, and mm-hmm. it's is this an old world deer as well too? This is
1: well, yeah. So that's. I mean,
0: I don't want to get ahead of the tax facts. I'm just so excited about <laughs> ungulate squad. I know we're trying ungulate to squad. Re- oh,
1: we got to rewrite Jeez. the story on ungulate. I mean, <laughs> So I think it's a very, to answer your question, it's, so it's native, the elk. There are a lot of subspecies, but I did not even get into that or not. I'm not going into it beyond this, but the elk, the Servus cadadensis, another extra syllable in there, they are native to North America and then also Eastern Asia, but it is thought that like way, 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 way back in prehistoric times that they were also inhabiting europe as well so i guess technically that would make them an old world elk or an old world deer but they're not in europe today Mm, yeah interesting so i actually was prompted to do this animal i've actually never really thought about elk much at all but i just read this book called the only good indians and it's by um, this indigenous writer, Stephen Graham Jones. And it's essentially, I picked it for Halloween because it's like a horror slasher novel that kind of incorporates contemporary indigenous issues. And it's gets pretty bloody and gory at parts. But a lot of it surrounds like elk and elk hunting and myths surrounding elk and the relationship of elk to the Blackfeet tribe, particularly in like, the Dakotas and Montana. Uh huh. Super interesting, creepy, weird book. Not for the faint of heart, I'll say that. But it did make me really want to learn more about elk. So here we are. Tax facts. We touched on this a little bit. So, Survey Day, that's our family here. So, we've spent so much time on these other things. Obviously, Kingdom Animalia, Phylum Chordata. Yeah. Class Mammalia. Yeah. Order Artiodactyla, Even Toad Ungulates. We love them. You know them. But now we can get into survey day. So deer and true deer, aka hoofed, ruminant animals. These are all terms that we've discussed before. So ruminant comes from the Latin ruminare, which means to chew again and again. So these are our foregut fermenters. So they actually have this four-chambered stomach. And so right before the food gets actually digested, it kind of hangs out and gets fermented. Hence the foregut fermentation yeah yeah <laughs> middle
0: as opposed to a hindgut fermenter
1: right within the sesum
0: in the sesum yeah
1: yeah Ooh. look at us go hey
0: <laughs> <laughs> I, I really like this meredith i
1: know we're so, i'm so proud of us okay so the genus is service and there's actually like i didn't i had a hard time finding a whole lot of like you know a quick pithy remark to make as far as the genus because It doesn't really apply to elk in this way, but it's a genus of deer that primarily are native to Eurasia, though one species occurs in Africa and another in North America Our elk. And the genus actually seems to be very much in flux, like animals are always getting brought in and then kicked back out. And so I think it's one of those genus that it's very large and it's very diverse, but there's always new information coming out and people just aren't sure like where to categorize these things. So I'll just leave that at that. But now we're into species. So the Servus catadensis, the elk, which is one of the largest species within the deer family mm-hmm. of cervidae, and one of the largest terrestrial mammals in North America. Ugh. So it's not quite as big as a moose, but it's right behind the moose. Sure. So this is some of the meatiest hunk of deer walking around out there. This was a little confusing, and I didn't know this, but in Europe, there's a lot of like, um, especially like Germanic languages and like Swedish, but a lot of words that sound like elk, but these words that sound like elk are what they actually use to refer to moose. <laughs> so okay, in Europe, what is known as elk, they're actually talking about what we call
0: mooses, How? What are the differences between meeses and elks?
1: I think the antler construction is different. I know moose's are much bigger. I, moose's might even be they're in a different um they're in the family of cervidae, but that breaks apart like cervidae there's two like subfamilies and I think one breaks off into m- moose and then in the other subfamily it's where we find our elk. That makes sense. Does that help? It does. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, like I said, they live in North America and Eastern Asia, and they prefer kind of like forest edge habitat. So, like, kind of close to the woods, but not all the way into the woods.
0: Like a proto sontime moment?
1: Yes, exactly. Like our other ruminant friends, they feed on grasses, plants, leaves, and bark. And especially during the summer, they're eating, again, like, ruminants have to eat, like, so, 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 so much food to get the proper amount of energy. Because this is very like grass and stuff isn't doesn't have much high nutritional value at all. So they're pretty much eating all the time, consuming up to like 15 pounds of vegetation a day. <laughs> Just like so much grass. That's a lot of foregut fermentation going on.
0: That's so much grass. Like how much does a single blade of grass weigh, do you think?
1: I like not even a grain. So gram. negligible. Like so freaking negligible. Like on my kitchen scale it wouldn't even register.
0: This is a good line of inquiry. (laughs) How many blades of grass are in a gram? That's what we would like to know, clubbies. Send in your experiment results to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. We
1: love to hear from you. So the appearance, the terms for male and female elk are bulls for males, and they weigh up to 750 pounds. So keep in mind, this is one of the largest terrestrial animals in North America, I should say. Um, And then cows are the females, and they weigh up to 530 pounds. Males are also different in that that they have antlers. Hey! (laughs) Which we've talked about with our caribou reindeer friends. So they have antlers, but, and this, again, always, like, blows my mind, that they shed them each year. So every summer and into winter, they will shed their antlers. And they will have antlers that are up to, like, three feet. So it's like... And that happens starting in early spring is when they start growing them. Right. And then by the early winter, they're shedding them. So in that right. short amount of time, they get these huge ass antlers. It's so crazy to me.
0: Yeah. it's That was true of the some of the other deer we've talked about, too. The way that right. they like cycle through their antlers every year.
1: It's nuts. Because you would think that would be something that would just slowly develop over time. And that, like... I don't know that somehow big antlers would be an indication of like maturity, but it totally isn't. Right. Like not at all. So. Right. Crazy. So actually another name for the elk is the Wapiti, which is a Shawnee Cree word. And that actually means, oh yeah, it means white rump. So you've got like the reddish coloring of the body of the elk. But if you look at one from behind, it's almost like there's just like a big bullseye on their butt. Oh. Cause it's like a, like a white, it's just like, ooh, how do I draw attention to my ass? Let's make it white. <laughs> so they it kind of makes them look like they've got these really like per prominent butts. Okay. So we talked about antlers and oh yeah, also the antlers, we talked about this with the caribou. They're covered in kind of this it's called like a vascular skin it's soft, known as the velvet. And the velvet is kind of this protective covering over the antlers as they grow, but it sheds in the summer once the antlers have kind of reached their full growth.
0: I remember reading somewhere that in some native cultures, their term for a period of time, like a season or a month, Uh is the time when the velvet falls off the antlers, essentially.
1: Right. Yeah. The time when the velvet falls. The time of the falling velvet. There it is. (laughs) I love that. So what's really interesting here, and this kind of made me think of your Indian spotted chevrotain with its tusks, with its tusks.
0: Tusk. Tusk.
1: Is that actually the canine teeth on the elk are actually made of ivory, which is supposedly remnants of the fact that probably in prehistoric times, these creatures would have actually had tusks like, the chevretane interesting yeah they retain these ivory teeth and again this is another major thing in certain indigenous cultures is those ivory teeth of the elk are very highly prized and they feature prominently in certain dress and jewelry as well they're um it's considered like a very special gift to give to a loved one for instance so that's fun and
0: i ivory is a different structure than a typical tooth
1: yeah, than just the like normal. I guess I've never considered that tooth enamel. Yeah, I hadn't either. Huh. And it played into this book as well. I was like, I need to read into what this ivory thing is because it had like a very prominent role. So, yeah, okay, so let's talk about some ilk behaviors. So, they like to hang out in same sex groups. So, the males are called bachelor groups. Oh, that sounds fun. It does. And essentially, They hang out in these dude groups, except for when it's mating season, otherwise known as rutting season or the rut. Yeah, rut it up! Rut it up! During rutting season, what they do is they follow around these herds of the cows, so the female elk known as harems, and they kind of fend off competitors using, obviously, their antlers to engage in battle. They can hurt other male elks and even kill them sometimes, but often. Too, they engage in these like screams. (laughs) There's it's all over YouTube, you can look this up, but it's called bugling. Mm. So essentially, the male elks will just kind of be like, "Ah!" It's like super high pitched. So it's funny seeing these huge hulking animals, like essentially being like, (laughs) So these calls can be heard for miles. And it's said that, like, the longest and strongest and most frequent. Bugles are very attractive to the ladies. So these ladies really like a boogie-woogie bugle boy.
0: Of Company Elk. (laughs) Yes. E for Elk. The boogie-woogie bugle boy of Company E. Yes, exactly. For Elk.
1: Um, And another thing that was very weird and interesting is like the male's urethras are positioned in such a way that like when they pee, it like comes out of their wieners at a right angle and upward onto them so they always pee on themselves which gives them an odor an ode an ode de urine (laughs) that makes them extra special extra pissy ladies like that pissy pissy smell it turns out (laughs) so the male elks are most in their prime and have the biggest harems between 3 and 10 years old after mating the woman will tend to isolate to have the baby gestations up to 262 days babies are born at like 35 pounds again with animal babies of all types they're often very susceptible to predators predators including coyotes cougars brown and black bears and humans as came up very much in this book that i read and the suggestion through this book and Elsewhere is that the, the mommies are very furiously protective of their young. And I thought this was really cute. So newborn calves are kept close by and they actually communicate. So they um, actually use like chirps, barks, squeals, and like mothers and calves can, they have their own language and can identify each other. So they actually kind of have like a language and words that they use. So in, like, bigger, essentially bigger nurseries, it's just, like, this ongoing constant chatter, like, all the time. Wow. So cute. So cute. So as far as migration, as is true for many species of deer that migrate, they kind of go up into the mountainous regions during spring, kind of following the snow melt, and come down to refuge in the fall. So one of the largest populations in the world is in the Yellowstone ecosystem. So kind of around, kind of north and surrounding um, the Yellowstone National Park in Wyoming. In the winter, they migrate south to the National Elk Refuge, which is a wildlife refuge that was established in Jackson Hole in 1912 to protect one of the largest elk herds on. Earth. So I love that back in 1912, there was like an eye towards, you know, respecting and protecting this native species. I think that's pretty. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, it's amazing, especially since I mean, this stuff is always interesting. But I just heard last week that November is indigenous or native heritage month. So I did want to talk about some of the indigenous significance. So this is a creature that is native to North America. Uh And therefore, like a lot of animals that are native to North America, also like the bison, bison, bison. They have a very, very strong significance in a lot of native cultures. Let's see. There was such a cool concept in here from a Lakota man speaking about... Native Americans consider the elk a clan animal, but to the Lakota, the elk is a member of the four-legged nation. I love the idea of the four-legged nation. (sighs) Me too. Yeah. So they wouldn't be called an animal at all. So Albert Whitehat, who was a uh, Lakota language teacher, he says, we don't have a word for animal in our language. An animal, as I understand, means a second-class citizen that doesn't have a mind. In our philosophy and spirituality, all creation has a mind, has a communication system, and we call them the Oyate nations. We call them Wamakaska, living beings of the earth, which I think is like I am just so moved by this idea of the four-legged nation. I've Yeah. Ever since I was very little and, you know, thought about animals and our relationship to them, I've just always identified with and really respected the reverence that native cultures have for other creatures other than themselves, obviously. Uh And something else I think that's really cool is the elk has, um, in a lot of cultures, been associated as protectors of women. So as kind of a mascot, I don't want to demean it in any way by calling it a mascot, but it's an animal that's kind of been associated with efforts, especially more recently, for um, fighting for the rights of indigenous women because their rates of domestic abuse right sexual violence is so high and so prevalent so a right. lot of these right. outreach efforts and awareness efforts will actually invoke the elk as kind of a kind of a spiritual protector because there's even legends where elk will kind of usher women back from enemy territories kind of bring them back home usher them back home so yeah i think the elk is pretty darn cool Despite the fact that they are, you know, the humble elk and I've never really thought about them much, you know, because I don't it's never anything I would ever see growing up in Ohio. I don't know that they live in Ohio, but I know they um, even in areas of like Kentucky, West Virginia, Tennessee, and some of the um, ooh, there's a mosquito in here. Ugh.
0: Don't get heartworm.
1: I know. Oh, man. I hate them. Get out of here. Um, But yeah. So elk go Elks Club. Yeah. I feel really
0: good about elk right now. Raise a hoof. Hoofs up.
1: Hoofs up. Break time? Yeah, (laughs) Unless you have any elk questions.
0: I don't have any elk questions at the moment. I'm interested to learn more about the four-legged nation. And once again, I have that same feeling I always have where it's just like, oh yeah, I should spend more time learning about the indigenous cultures Mm -hmm. of North America and their relationships to animals.
1: Yeah. I would check out this book. You can borrow it, Mike. It's like pretty...
0: Yeah, that bonkers. That gives us an excuse to meet up at some point. Yeah, we can book club, (laughs) do an adventure. Yeah, maybe I'll like take the ferry again.
1: Love it. Break time. Break time.
0: Trees got you down.
1: Need to clear an area for your home?
0: Or alter the paths of rivers? Creeks? Streams? Or other bodies of water? Or maybe you've compiled firewood over the years.
1: And you just need to make that lumber disappear?
0: Then check out Castori Day Lumber Maintenance Group, LLC.
1: The new brand clubby affiliate service.
0: Castori Day Lumber Maintenance Group, LLC, is naturally well-equipped to deal with any lumber circumstance.
1: Commonly called beavers. Castorids possess legendary wood-cutting technology directly in their own mouths.
0: They are constantly regrowing and resharpening their tree-cutting teeth.
1: Ensuring your trees are trimmed quickly.
0: Log on to the Brand Clubby web portal to schedule a free consultation with a well-qualified castorid.
1: Or if you're ready to schedule removal, sign up for a time that works with your schedule.
0: And don't forget to use code THANKSCASTORIDS15 at checkout for 15% off your first appointment with Castorid Lumber Maintenance Group, LLC. I'm just smelling a lot of hops, but I think I'm still drunk from last night.
1: So I know. I'm just to so really say honestly. a lot of mezcal here. <laughs> Feedback. Yeah, we're here. Okay. So Joe from Delaware wants to know, can donkeys blow raspberries? And I would say.
0: <laughs> Listen up, Corn Pop. The answer is yes.
1: <laughs> Sorry, Effolence. We do love you but today get the big old donkey raspberry so yeah joe i think i think that answers it they sure can <laughs> yeah and today is possession. evidence of that a fish position. Ding ding. Ding ding, ding 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 ding
0: ding 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 dang, ding ding
1: ding ding dang, ding ding
0: ding dang,
1: dang, 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 <laughs> da
0: that was hail to the chief yes <laughs> polly from burbank asks what's up with the eurasian brown bears they're so moody is that because of opera?
1: <laughs> like, just the fact that they're from Europe? I, and that's <laughs> the birthplace of opera?
0: I'm just going to go ahead and say, <laughs> Polly, I think that you might be thinking about a very specific Eurasian brown bear. And I think that maybe for that individual, opera is the answer. But this question is really about the species. So they... I mean, look, you're telling me that Eurasian brown bears are moody. That's fine. I believe you. I would expect them to be. They're bears. Bears tend to be moody. hmm
1: mm-hmm. Are
0: they moody because of opera?
1: I mean, perhaps not.
0: I don't think that moody Eurasian brown bears are only that way because of opera. But I do think that they may be more likely to be attracted to the genre of opera. Because it is such an emotionally explorative genre.
1: Yeah, I do love oh an opera audience full of bears clapping with their little paws. So cute. It makes me think of that Joanna Newsom song, The Monkey and the Bear, which is fantastic. In which wow. case, the bear is very moody because it's almost being like, I don't know, it's under the thumb of the monkey and the bear just wants to escape to go play in the caves at night. I
0: mean, yeah. <laughs> I always feel like when I'm listening to a Joanna Newsom song and trying to divine meaning from it, I need the lyrics sheet. And then I also need like a history of early mid 20th century military (laughs) organization and like also like a thesaurus and then like a book about. The elf traditions of like Northwestern Ireland, you know what I mean? Like a very, yes. like I feel like I need like a curated set of resources to just kind of help guide me, through, which is one of the many reasons why I just love listening to her. Yeah, music. well, check out. I mean, the music itself is amazing, oh. but the lyrics, it's like a you gotta like really buckle up. Yeah, you know? well, check
1: out Monkey and the Bear. It's um, I will say you, it's like kind of like a story piece, so you don't need a whole lot of like the sources,
0: <laughs> the sorai,
1: the sorai. Check it out. See how the bear in there feels. Okay. Yeah, maybe they love opera and that's why they're moody. Or maybe they're drawn to opera because it, you know, maps on to their emotional yeah. turbulence. I don't know.
0: Yeah, I think that the answer to this question, there's two questions here. What's up with Eurasian brown bears? We don't really seem to know. <laughs> sure don't. Then there's a statement they are so moody and then there's another question is that because of opera is their moodiness because of opera and we seem to have arrived at the conclusion that their moodiness is not because of opera perhaps moody individuals are attracted to opera because of opera's emotional circumstance Mm -hmm. but I don't think that the entire species' alleged moodiness is due to the genre of opera. Right. A fish position.
1: A fish position. Boom. Ding. Ding. Sammy from Seaside Heights is wondering, what boardwalk snack do seagulls miss most during the winter season?
0: Ooh. Well, um, maybe let's consider a... Um, what are some common snacks? A funnel cake. Oh, gosh.
1: Nathan's hot dogs, a Zeppeli, ice cream cones, chips. I might just go with chips because I feel like they're easy to grab. They're not super messy. They're crunchy. I just see seagulls being like, ah,
0: ah, Chips! I respectfully disagree. Okay. I think that the seagulls are more into meat. Oh, you think? Themed products, products with meat. Yeah, like a pepperoni pizza. hmm hmm I would say that's their favorite. Because, like, ice cream cones would get weird and melty and, like, kind of soggy and probably not. I don't know that the cone is what the seagull is going for okay like funnel cakes are great but that's kind of like a quotidian experience you know like a lot of people are not finishing their full funnel cake like i feel like there's an abundance of loose bits of funnel cake and pretzel and things like that but i feel like pepperoni pizza is a rarer get Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. probably something that they're likely to lose to in new york at least pigeons and rats Right, you know. So <laughs> yeah. I think that that's my that's that's what I feel from the snacks that we've listed. I guess again, each individual has its own taste. Yeah, surely.
1: I mean, there is that famous picture of like the seagull wiping an ice cream cone right out of a guy's hand. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he just looks very upset about it. Yeah, but yeah. So I guess I'm going with chips. Mike is going with pepperoni pizza.
0: Fish position.
1: Ding 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 dong.
0: <laughs> <laughs> da, 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 ding, 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 da, 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 ding, ding, dong, dong,
1: dong. We've got nematodes. We've got elks. We've got donkeys. We've got murder hornets, and we've got accessory glands. Is that what those were?
0: accessory glands is what they are called yes
1: what an episode
0: this was a pretty killer episode Meredith I gotta say. I, feel, I will say I feel like everybody's kind of back in a little bit of a groove even just in the past couple of this has been such a week you know yes. like yes. like it's Saturday of election week and we had a, this has been a little bit of a journey the sure past couple has. days. And I feel like starting Thursday, everybody was still a little bit like shell-shocked. And then Friday, people were like, okay. And then today, everybody's like,
1: Woo! We are so, back in the New York groove.
0: Yeah, a lot of relief here in
1: yeah. the city. Yeah.
0: All right. Well, uh, will please send us your questions. hmm AnimalFanClubPod at gmail.com. You
1: know, we love to hear from you.
0: And until next time, have a good week in animals.
1: And <laughs> raise a hoop. Who's up? Who's up? Ungulate. <laughs> Ungulate.
0: <laughs> Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jergens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences.
1: Send us your listener feedback questions to AnimalFanClubPod at gmail.com.
0: Follow us on Instagram at AnimalFanClubPod at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno.
1: And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app that really helps us out. Thanks for
0: listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal Fan Club.